So, Ray, uh, you're going to be talking about embodied activism today. Right. Um, this is a this is a follow-up to a conversation that, that we had had a couple of weeks ago. Um, and I thought it might be a good opportunity to discuss something that I'm having lots of conversations about in my own work, in my own professional circles, um, both as a, a teacher of graduate students um, but also as a somatics practitioner and someone who um, increasingly is having conversations with other somatic practitioners, particularly practitioners who, in this current political climate, feel really galvanized to begin to attend to issues of social justice, even more so than they had been doing previously. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that I think that we can agree that that historically many of our somatic practices, our somatic psychotherapy models and our um, somatic education uh, models are actually rooted in some form of activism, some resistance against a prevailing order or paradigm um, and represented a, a pushback against um, those dominant paradigms, whether they were dominant medical paradigms or physical therapy paradigms or psychotherapy or social paradigms. I mean, Wilhelm Reich comes to mind yeah, as yeah. as one of those examples of people who um, really understood his work as both political as well as, as personal. So, so part of the implication uh, is that the problems that people have are not just personal problem in a sense of just affecting them, but they're also resulting from the position of this person in society, and it's a domino effect falling onto one person that's creating this. Exactly. Um, and I would suggest that all personal problems are also social and political problems. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's possible to untangle the two. Yeah. And And part of the difficulty, part of the challenge with our current model, medical model, healthcare model, psychotherapy model, is that we tend to individualize and pathologize. And it works very well for some kinds of things and to help us do certain things um, and really um, tends to neglect the social and cultural implications of the work that we do. So what that's meant, I think, for many of us sort of in my generation um, and younger who didn't um, train with the pioneers and didn't necessarily get a transmission of social activism accompanying the the particular technique and the training that we were learning. And because, quite frankly, um, many members of our communities hold a fair bit of privilege. We tend to be well-educated, overwhelmingly white, um, able-bodied, straight, middle class or better, um, professional people. That because of the, the privilege that we hold, I, I think many of us don't feel as though we have um, much traction when it comes to under, understanding our work and extending our, our professional work into the territory of social justice. Mm-hmm. And, and because I've been hearing a lot of this from colleagues of mine and from students of mine, like, I, I care about this stuff and... And I see the world going to hell in a handbasket and I want to do something. But what do I do and where do I start? And how do I, how do I make a contribution that is 
actually harnessing my skills, my perspectives, my knowledge, and not asking me to do something that anyone could do or that I don't feel particularly well-equipped to do. So um, I thought these were great questions, and um, I gave it a lot of thought and, and did some research and started to pull together some ideas that are not original to me by any stretch, but I think hopefully represent a compilation of some of the best advice out there and drawing on some of the best research that I was able to, to pull together to help us understand. So we're well-intentioned, well-meaning, maybe a little clueless, but motivated. What do we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, I came up with three sort of big things. And I and I I present them in sequence. They don't have to go in this sequence, but there are reasons why if you're just starting this this process for yourself um, to think about it as three steps. Mm-hmm. The first step is do your own work, and and that is take the time to educate yourself about oppression and oppressive social systems and how they work. There's lots of information out there, lots of really excellent books, lots of trainings, and um, that's fairly easy to access if you just go looking for it. There's actually also now um, an increasing amount of of scholarly work and, and professional writing on embodiment and oppression, so that you don't just have to go educate yourself about you know, multicultural competence or social justice, you can actually go read things that are specific and tailored for somatic professionals. Mm -hmm. So my own book, Embodied Social Justice, is one of them. And there's now coming out um, in the spring an edited anthology um, edited by Christine Caldwell and Lucia Layton um, on embodiment and oppression and a series of chapters addressing all kinds of issues. So it's increasingly easy to get educated about really basic things like, you know, privilege and power and dominance and how social systems work. So if that's not background, I'll have that information. Just do that first. Yeah. And get familiar with some of the basic patterns. Um, But the other piece of doing your own work is actually applying what you learn from your own reading or the training that you do to your own life and start to unpack how oppression has shaped you. So, so that's a, a very powerful thing that we're talking about. Embodiment is a, an oppression. You know, it's a, as we're talking yeah. about it that way, it could, it's very easy for the human mind to go into making it an abstraction. And it's bringing yes. back. Embodiment means your body. Yes, exactly. Right. This isn't something out there. Mm-hmm. This is something in here. Our bodies both hold the impact of oppressive experiences, but we also perpetuate, reproduce oppressive interpersonal dynamics through our body language. So there's a, there's a very powerful, um, territory of social justice that's going on on what I call the micro-sociological level, which is the everyday, day-to-day, body-to-body level, and inside the body level. And and that's quite a shift from how I think we're used to understanding it's just the social justice, which is up at the micro, uh, rather the macro level 
of legislation and, you know, large institutions doing work and those kinds of community groups organizing and protests, those are all really important things. Mm-hmm. And helping helping us understand how that all lands and how we reproduce it from the ground up through our bodies is, is something that I think that somatic practitioners are uniquely positioned to address. So that's that's where, how do I do social justice work that actually harnesses my own skills, my own orientations and interests? That's the answer to that, is to recognize that somatic practitioners are really knowledgeable and skilled about investigating sensation and movement and interaction in the relational field. We're really good at that. But what we seem to have moved away from and I think need to move back to is how to bring a social justice lens to all of those activities. Yeah, it's, it's really in our work. No longer having these as two separate areas, but just Correct. seeing the link. Yes. You know, it's how it's here. And so yeah. in our practice we are very sensitive to the implicit, you know, and to everything that it, but just we make it psychological um, and this is about connecting it to the bigger picture and putting ourselves in that picture exactly and and I think it's it's actually from for most um, somatically oriented practitioners that I know not going to be much of a stretch to start with the step of do your own work first mm-hmm. because that's that's for most of us I think that's a real basic foundation of our own professional training is that we started with ourselves. Yeah, yeah, but not necessarily so, from a point of view of paying attention to oppression. Right, exactly. Yeah. But, but we're, we're really comfortable working experientially and applying what we learn to ourselves first. So it's the same thing, only this time have a look at how has oppression affected my own body and my relationship to my body? How has it affected my body image? How has it affected my body language? How has it affected the degree to which I actually feel a sense of connection to my own body or not? And I would, I would suggest, um, that, that folks have a look at those things, um, from the perspective of how have I perhaps experienced being oppressed and the relational wounds that that oppression may have inflicted on me and how do I start to identify them and begin to heal them? Understanding oppression as a form of trauma. So we can draw on all the stuff that we already know as somatic practitioners about trauma. But also, where does privilege live in my body? Mm-hmm. So just to, to, to stop still at the, the notion of the oppression part, um, yeah. the very interesting link is that... Um, we talk, for instance, about body image. And yes. so the experience of it is the experience that there's something defective, an experience yes. of shame and isolation. And yes. um, so what you're talking about is actually something that breaks from that sense of isolation and therefore shame uh, mm-hmm. in order to see it in a context where right. instead of being your fault... Uh, to be defective, mm-hmm. uh, it's yes. about seeing it as the impact of, um, you know, oppression yeah. on your self-perception. Exactly. 
And so when I, when I work with folks around, um, body norms, so social norms about the body, um, one of the things that I consistently find is it's incredibly liberating for people to identify their ideas about what makes bodies okay or not okay or beautiful or ugly or, you know, great or awful or acceptable or unacceptable, that those are socially constructed ideas. And as soon as we start naming them and go, oh, this is not actually a natural truth <laughs> about my body or your body. These are things that we've made up and unconsciously, perhaps, agreed to follow. And as soon as you raise that that insight to the level of awareness, you've got a choice about whether or not you believe it or not. Mm-hmm. So that allows people to begin to go, oh, okay, you know, fat oppression is a thing. And I'm not going to buy into it anymore, and I'm going to stop considering my own fat body as ugly. So that's those are some examples of, of doing your own work. And I, um, if this is the first time that you've done this work, I really recommend understanding it as a piece of trauma healing and doing it with the support of someone that you trust, either a, a, another professional or a, in a peer group context. But don't do that work in isolation if this feels like this might be fairly raw or new territory for you. Because it's it's just like doing trauma work. It is doing trauma work. It's just recognizing oppression is traumatic. Yeah. So um, the second step that I recommend is to work for others. And this is a little bit different than I think what a lot of people do, and it's certainly different from what I did um, in my 20s as I was starting to um, become more um, conscious of of social justice and issues of disparity and difference. I started working within the queer community because that was a form of oppression that I understood and related to. And so I wanted to have my, my actions, um, further, um, the, the issues and concerns of a group that, and a community that I identified with. But what I've since discovered and I think there are a lot of folks that I've been reading and, and talking to who would who would echo this, is that there's something uniquely powerful powerful about dedicating yourself and using your own privilege to help a group of people not like you. So that if you have no experience of poverty, <coughs> excuse me, go and work with the homeless. If you have no experience of racism, go and work with a, a group that, um, you know, works against um, racial injustice. And I think there's something about working with others that um, helps us cultivate kinesthetic empathy, which we talked about before. And it's much, I think, much easier to identify that that's a skill that's helpful, not only in becoming more empathetic with yourself, but really understanding the plight of others and and stepping beyond our own natural tendency 
to focus on our own self-interest. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, um, of work being written right now around the kind of <clears throat> challenges that, um, social justice activism groups are experiencing. There's, there's, um, calling out and really giving one another an incredibly hard time for very small missteps in what people are saying or how they're behaving or what their priorities are. And, and my antidote to that or one of my suggestions to help counterbalance that is to actually focus your, your first baby steps around activism and embodied activism in a group of people who aren't like you. Mm-hmm. Once you've really got that this is this is about everyone, this, this is about all of us, that we all rise together, and that if we leave certain groups behind, our own liberation is compromised, then I think we're in a position to start working together and working around our own issues, and that's the third step. So that's it's, a it's a very very different from a sense of um, uh, a sense of victimization, you know. Yes. Um, and me or my group is uniquely victimized versus yes. uh, there is a generalized oppression, and yes. everybody is suffering from it, and yes. you know also liberated as it lifts. Exactly. We are, we are all in this together. Mm-hmm. And, um, this idea of, and I'm, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't form groups of like-minded people who understand one another and, um, work together around particular issues affecting that group. I have, I think that's a, a really important thing for us to be doing. It's just important that that specific work around a particular community or a particular social identification not get insular and isolated from other people doing similar work around different issues Mm -hmm. because it's the same work. Yeah. So those are are my three steps. Um, And where where the body comes into play in in the second two, um, again, allows somatic practitioners to really draw on our own strengths and capacities. And that is, if we're going to work on behalf of others, if we're going to work with people who are different from us around their issues, around their concerns, in support of their liberation, one of the things that we're going to have to get really good at is self-regulating, being attentive, being present, being in our bodies, being kinesthetically empathetic and bracketing our own reactions so that we're actually there as a supportive presence. These are all things we do every day in our in our consulting rooms, in our own private practices or in the groups that we run. We're really good at this, but I think that um, it's important to remember to bring that skill set with us when we step into a circle uh, or a community where social justice activism is going on. That's a place where being reactive and um, and failing to be empathetic really can do some, some more damage to a, a group of people who are already vulnerable, who are already hurting. And because 
the people in those groups often carry a fair bit of pain and don't always know the amount of pain that they're carrying or where the wounds are. They can be volatile atmospheres, and I think it's really important that that somatic folks can go in and model a way of being kind and present and attentive and self-regulating mm-hmm. and offering co-regulation. So I'm using all these terms that somatic folks mostly know because that started to be the work that we've done around trauma. Yeah, um, yeah. And they're really good skills to bring into into communities of activism. And so very makes it... It's consistent with that notion of um, these ills are trauma. And so therefore yes. we bring in the skills of trauma, which is yes. our own regulation, uh, mm-hmm. and that we help um, through our presence and, yes. um, and help spread that. Right. We, we help through our own presence, and we also use our, our, in many cases, very highly developed capacities for tracking the autonomic nervous system of the people that we're with so that we can tell when they're activated, when they're, you know, when they need some settling. And so all of that stuff happens on the nonverbal level. You don't need to say anything. Mm-hmm. So, so we're, as I'm following you, the idea is that um, we're not doing therapy in, a, in no. activism, but no. we bring the skills um, because those skills are appropriate in a situation where people are activated due the, to the trauma of oppression. Exactly. And and one of the things that happens in in community activist groups is that that's that's not on their agenda. That's not um, that's not something that they're consciously aware of. They're aware of the work that they want to do, the boycott that they want to organize, or the legislation that they want to pass, or the thing that they want to protest, and they're focused on the activity that they believe is going to support their liberation. And they're not wrong. These are really important activities. They're not focused necessarily on recognizing how wounded they are or how easily upset they are or how activated they are. So the field, the embodied relational field, isn't necessarily being attended to. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and so, but we can attend to it. So how we attend to it, uh, in many cases it may not be possible to actually do it, uh, you know, have a big conversation about how it will be attended, but at the very least it's about a way of interacting that's going to be informed by these skills. Absolutely. And even... Even just as an intervention as simple as, I'm aware that, um, that there seems to be quite a bit of energy in the room and I wonder if we could just all stop and put our feet on the ground and take a breath. That's all I need to do. And you take a breath and you put your feet on the ground and people will follow you. Um, Mm -hmm. if they recognize, oh yeah, we actually, that might be good. And then you move on. Doesn't have, like you said, doesn't have to be a big conversation. But it doesn't mean that you that you don't actually intervene when that's when that's helpful. You can, you can bring that awareness of what's happening on an energetic level because you're tracking the bodies of the people in the room. Mm 
ideas, some thoughts that, that hopefully um, draw on what many of us already know as somatic practitioners and take that knowledge and skill and move it into a territory where I think many of us really do want to make a difference. We want to make a contribution. We, we look at the state of the world and many of us, I think, are, are in varying degrees of despair around the the social changes that we see happening and the um, the distress and the economic disparity and the pain in the world. And there actually are things that we can do without being someone that we don't think we are. This recording is part of the podcast at relationalimplicit.com. Awareness of what's happening on an energetic level because you're tracking the bodies of the people in the room. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, some ideas, some thoughts that that hopefully um, draw on what many of us already know as somatic practitioners and take that knowledge and skill and move it into a territory where I think many of us really do want to make a difference. We want to make a contribution. We, We look at the state of the world and many of us, I think, are, are in varying degrees of despair around the, the social changes that we see happening and the, um, the distress and the economic disparity and the pain in the world. And there actually are things that we can do without being someone that we don't think we are. This recording is part of the Somatic Mindfulness and Relational Psychotherapy podcast, See the website, relationalimplicit.com.